You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 15 in our sacrament series and our second episode on matrimony. Father Loop is back to see how a simple change in the understanding of the ends or purpose of marriage can have extraordinarily far-reaching and disastrous effects for couples, families, and even whole nations. What happens when you switch the order of two of the purposes of marriage? We'll see why this shift happened, what the reaction was, and how it actually caused Pope Paul VI to never want to write another encyclical. But first, we'll start with the consequences and then work our way backwards. Can this simple change explain the degradation of the modern family? We'll try next. If you like these series and want to help us continue to make them, you can help by leaving a small monthly or one-time donation on sspxpodcast.com or by subscribing to this channel on YouTube or by subscribing and leaving a rating for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And thank you for doing that, for helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now, let's join Father Loop for episode number 15 of the sacrament series, right now. Well, Father Luke, thank you for joining us again on this topic of matrimony. How has your week been? It's been very good. Thank you very much. And yours? Good. Good. Uh, very good, actually. We were just talking before we started recording. It's always nice when a day actually is productive. It's so rare, mm-hmm. probably for you as well as the principal of a school. You get hit with <laughs> 30 things before you get anything accomplished, probably. That's often very true. It's kind of one of the joys of having kidlets. You know, that happens. <laughs> exactly. Well, Father, um, we, we talked about the traditional uh, form of marriage. We talked about the traditional reason for marriage in our last episode. Today, we're going to start talking about uh, the, new, the new right. Where would you like to begin, Father? That's a good question. And I think perhaps in order to give a little bit of context to what we're going to discuss... A very brief look at, let's say, the situation of marriage in the church, at least here in the U.S., might be of some help because I think that will, in a way, give a living uh, background to precisely the, the principles that we're going to see. And indeed, it's, it's a very large question that touches, I would say, on a lot of people's lives. So to begin that, uh, I'd like to reference a few statistics that are provided by Georgetown, actually, uh, by a service they run uh, called CARA, C-A-R-A, um, which is designed precisely to gather statistics that in some way or another indicate the, the health of the church, what's going on in the church. You know, so they'll do things like how many people are getting ordained, what's their background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they have a very, very helpful section called their FAQs, um, things that they most often are asked about. And some of those are, I think, very eye-opening. So maybe in the first place, we can look at the Catholic population here in the United States. So they've been more or less keeping track of this since uh, 1970 is where they begin. And what they note is that in 1970, there was... If you look at the question of parish registers, you know, who's actually part of the parish, roughly 48 million people in the U.S. at that time were Catholic. Um, Now, if you go to people who identify themselves as Catholic, it rises slightly to 54 million. You know, it's about 6 million gap, you know, who think of themselves as Catholic but weren't on the registers. 
Now, if you fast forward to 2020, that's which is the last year that they have statistics for, they show that now in the United States, they have just under 68 million Catholics that are on the registers, so official Catholics, uh, baptized members of a parish or whatever. And if you look at the self-identified, those who claim to be Catholic without necessarily having that affiliation, it rises to about 72 million people, which would be roughly about a fifth of the country's population. In fact, just a little bit over that. All right. So that's, I think, a kind of a beginning starting point. So what we see in the church in the U.S. is at least numerically a growth. Now, unfortunately, that's uh, that growth is very superficial. And one maybe observation is that uh, there's been a drop, a fairly significant drop of those who identify as Catholics. So the height was in 2010, where you had 81 million people identify as Catholic, meaning roughly in the last 10 years, that's dropped by about um, 10 million almost, you know, just those who are identifying themselves. Although oddly enough, the, the number of registered Catholics has continued to grow. So anyways, so really what you're seeing is people who weren't really practicing just no longer say they're not practicing. Right. Now, what you might expect as a result of that is to see the sacramental life to grow accordingly. Uh, since you have um, about a 20 or almost a 50% increase in the number of Catholics or thereabouts, um, you would kind of expect that. But if you dig into the statistics, that's not what you see. And we begin, perhaps, given our our topic here of marriage, by looking at sacramental marriages. Here in 1970, again, the first year that they have the records uh, on their website, what they show is that in that year, they had 430,000 marriages for Catholics. It's not bad. (laughs) So it's about... um, 2% 2% of the Catholic population at the time was getting married that year. Wow. Um, and at the same year, and we'll kind of maybe do these together, they had about just over 1 million baptisms throughout the whole of the United States. It's pretty nice. Okay. Yeah. It's a, a lot of, a lot of children being born. And that's not even, that's not even the time of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the baby boom right after world war two, it's still pretty, pretty intense. But now if you flash or fast forward to uh, 2020, again, last year they have statistics for, if you look at marriages, so again, we've had uh, the Catholic population is now about 20 million more, roughly, than it was um, 50 years ago. And what we see in the marriages, we go from, in 1970, 430,000 to Two years ago, roughly 130,000. So it's a drop by about um, 75%, roughly. Wow. Just the bare number of marriages. And then if you look at the question of baptisms, the you go from just over a million baptisms to two years ago, 550,000. You know, it's, it's almost you have the number of new babies being baptized. Together with that, it might be of some interest to to look at the statistics for annulments. Now, again, annulments were something where it's the church, for one reason or another, declaring that a marriage, of, actually a supposed marriage, never in fact existed. 
And it was a very rare thing. You know, in you know, prior to the Second Vatican Council, you might have a few hundred for the whole world a year. Now, they didn't actually keep statistics for this in 1970 or up until 1990 or 1985 is the first year that I see statistics on Georgetown's website. Okay. But in 1985, um, in that year, you had 61,000 annulments declared in the U.S. alone, which is by far and away, unfortunately, the worst of all the Western countries. Um, now, that number has continued to drop more or less uh, as a yearly total until in 2020, two years ago, you only had, had 20,000 annulments declared. Now, it's a little hard to measure this directly with the marriages, but that's um, one-sixth of the number of marriages that were entered into um, that year. And again, in the previous five, ten years, you had had roughly similar amounts of marriages each of those years which indicates that it's a fairly large percentage, even if it's dropped numerically, of marriages that are ending in annulments. Right. Which indicates there is some... Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's not as high as divorce rates, but it's still, it's it's a lot, a sixth. Correct. It is. Yeah, it's a lot. And um, in one way or the other, it indicates that there's something profoundly at odds or off kilter, uh, even amongst Catholics as far as marriage. The fact that there are so few getting ordained, or not ordained, but getting married. Um, and of those, a fairly large number are saying, oh wow, something went wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Now another statistic that's of some interest in, again, providing a little bit of background for what we're gonna see as far as the changed attitude towards marriage that manifests itself initially at Vatican II and then is you know, works its way into the Catholic life afterwards is a question of contraception. Um, and this was something that I'm pretty sure that Father McFarland discussed way back when in the introductory podcast to the crisis in the church. Right. And um, this one, in a way, is pretty disheartening. And uh, what I'm going to reference here is a, a survey. It's done by the, an organization uh, called the Guttmacher Institute, Uh, which was done in 2011. So this is about 10 years ago. It's a fairly famous study, uh, which was a little bit misrepresented in the press at the time because it's you get a very famous statistic. This was, well, maybe the background. This is performed more or less right at the time that you had Obamacare being um, passed. And together with that, the requirement that businesses provide free contraceptives to their employees, their female employees. And you had a very famous Supreme Court case that was brought by uh, a group called the Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, basically, the sisters saying, we in conscience cannot provide, you know, let's say those people who are working for us, um, whatever that capacity may be, with this thing that was against our religion. And there is this institute survey was quoted quite frequently in saying, ah, you claim this, but if you look at the numbers, in fact, upwards of 98% of Catholic women have used contraception. And there was a little bit of pushback on that. And so um, the, the same institute, the, the Guttmacher Institute, published a study a little bit later, um, which clarified, dug a little bit more deeply into the numbers because that 98% of Catholic women basically uh, was counting anyone who'd ever used anything. 
um, even if they weren't necessarily using it on a regular basis. So you, know, you might have a young lady who makes a mistake or something like that, but is not really deeply right. saying it's fine. So they're like, okay, fine. We'll, we'll dig into this a little bit. And so we'll ask a little bit a further question, which is how many of Catholic women are currently using on a regular basis contraceptives? And when they clarified that, what the numbers that they got in their survey was 87% of Catholic women were regularly, or at that time of the survey, still making use of contraceptives. And then they took one step further and said, okay, uh, if we look at something, a higher, a more effective manner of contraception, for example, an IUD, sterilization, some of these terrible techniques that modern science, modern medicine has made available, unfortunately, what they found there is that uh, 68% of Catholics are currently using one of these more highly effective methods of contraception, indicating that a very sizable majority of Catholic women in the U.S. Um, regularly, or maybe not regularly, but at least on a somewhat uh, steady basis, make use of those methods. Um, which, if the church traditionally has taught that that's something which is intrinsically forbidden, indicates there is some kind of disconnect at a very deep right. level. And maybe one last thing to give, and just very briefly. Uh, again, this, this context and the situation in the church as a whole, and here expanding a little bit beyond the borders of the U.S., um, if you look at uh, what uh, sociologists call a total fertility rate, by which they mean the number of children a woman can be expected to have over the course of her childbearing years in any given country, uh, what you see is that um, there's a pretty dire problem in Catholic countries. What, what, uh, what they say, what statisticians say is that um, for a country even to stay at the same population level, you have to roughly have um, a total fertility rate of 2.1, which means that the average woman has, uh, on average, 2.1 children, which reminds me of a Gary Larson uh, cartoon where you have this guy entering in a in a, uh, a person's house and the parents like, we'd like to introduce you to our 1.5 children. And you have like two kids <laughs> next to each other, or at least one half of a kid. But anyways. I was um, thinking of that exact same comic strip when you said that, Father. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a very light way of looking at this. But right. um, anyways, if, if you break this down, the top 100 countries, as far as is concerned, are basically, uh, and I exaggerate a little bit, but not by much, in Africa and the Middle East. The, the top country in the world is Niger, with, uh, where the average woman over the course of her uh, childbearing years can expect to have seven children. So that's the average. <laughs> right. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Now, if you start looking though at traditionally Catholic countries or you know, long-standing Catholic countries, as say in Europe, the top country uh, we can say is France, which is 105th in the world. And it has a, a total fertility rate of 2.06, meaning it's below replacement level. But they're having kids. Right. Of course, if you dig into that a little bit, it gets a little bit more problematic because who's having kids in France? Um, well, probably traditionalist Catholics and Muslims. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, but you take a long time to get to the next Catholic country, let's say Belgium. 
So now we're down to 151. And there, they're at 1.77 kids per woman. Oops, that's unfortunate. And then if we get to Spain and Italy, these, you know, traditionally bastions of Catholic culture, Spain is at 1.51. And Italy is at 1.47. Those are disastrous numbers for any civilization. And just maybe to help our listeners to understand what that means, let's say you have a population of 200 people in the country, just for simplicity's sake, and it's broken down evenly. 100 men, 100 women. They're all married to each other. It's a hunky-dory world. If you have a replacement rate of 1.47, that means those 100 women will have 147 children. So the next generation, you go from a population 200 to 147. If that continues, and let's say that 147 is split evenly, you have 74 boys, 74 girls, you have in the next generation, 100 and basically 15 kids. So in almost two generations, the population of the country drops by half. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Again, that's just, of course, if it works in a perfect mathematical basis. Right. But, and maybe just to illustrate that, I had a good family friend who went traveling in Italy and they had eight kids at the time. No. At the time, they had seven kids. You know, and so they're just going to various different places and they're going through Italy. And they recall very distinctly, like going through Venice at one point and, uh, Basically, all the Italian, old Italians were like, bambini, bambini, like you have kids. This is awesome. You know, it's great to see kids around. Right. But it's just because there's so few uh, amongst the people. My wife and I were touring Italy a few years ago and we were at parks. They were empty. And this was yeah. you know, before COVID. Like, you know, yeah. people were supposed to be at the parks, right? Mm-hmm. There were no kids at the parks. Uh, it yeah. was, I remember actually telling my wife, oh, look, there's some kids. It was so weird. To see mm-hmm. kids, yep. it's it's striking. Yeah, and again, it's in our context right here and now. Um, you know, this is, I think, the background picture of how to understand the real world effects of what we're going to see as far as the changed perspective on what marriage is, in fact, meant to be. Um, that's again began at the Second Vatican Council and which has unfortunately continued to make itself very present in the life of many, many Catholics. And again, a lot of people in, let's say, our circles and uh, society circles or maybe even, I would add, uh, traditional circles and even conservative Novus Ordo parishes, they're a little bit cut off from that wider reality of what's going on in the church, unfortunately. Right. Now, of course, the question arises, where does this come from? Where do all these statistics that are not very encouraging, if you just look at them on the surface, humanly speaking, work, what's the origin of that? And I would say that to begin, what leads to this uh, confusion was a, a confusion about the very purpose and ends of marriage and a reversal of those ends, which really was not, didn't originate at Vatican II, but which found its, let's say, highest initial expression there, and which informed a lot of the reforms that came after the Council. And perhaps by way of introducing that aspect, I'd like to quote uh, 
a comment to Pope Francis, uh, which arose in one of his infamous interviews after one of the papal trips, this time uh, as he was coming back from the Philippines in January of 2015. And uh, one of the journalists, I, as I understand it, asked a question about precisely uh, artificial contraception in the wake, you know, in the Philippines is one of the few Catholic countries left that has a high birth rate and their population is very growing a lot, you know, uh, still growing quite enormously. And so the implication being is, well, they're going to run into all these overpopulation problems and therefore, you know, uh, shouldn't something be done about that? Now, apparently, uh, to his credit, he didn't, let's say, say, oh, no, it's fine to use artificial contraception. Great. But right. in speak, I'll, and here I'll just quote from an article that comes from the BBC, you know, the British Broadcasting Corps uh, from that time. Okay. And the author there from the BBC says that speaking to journalists while heading back to Rome from the Philippines on Monday, Pope Francis was asked what he would say to families who had more children than they could afford because the church forbids artificial contraception. He replied with an unexpected turn of phrase. You know, some people think that, excuse my expression here, that in order to be good Catholics, we have to be like rabbits. No, parenthood is about being responsible. This is clear. And I remember at the time, you know, a lot of families were you know, up in arms about this because, you know, basically it's you know, on the face of it, it's very insulting. Mm -hmm. And I would say that <laughs> on the one hand, it's completely out of line with reality. The problem with most Catholic families is not that they're breeding like rabbits. It's the fact they're having too few children. But even otherwise, the, uh, the very mentality there is the sense that they're not really and fundamentally there to bring new life into the world. You know, that's just animalistic. There's nothing noble about that fundamentally. And the mindset he's expressing there, I think, can be traced back to the council. And interestingly enough, there was a very intense and heated debate during the third session of the council. So here we're talking about the fall of 1964, when the document, the conciliar document, uh, Gaudium et Spes, which is where marriage is discussed, was debated. Okay. And there was a very, well, I might say infamous uh, exchange, precisely where a number of liberal cardinals and bishops pushed strongly to explicitly reverse the, the ends of marriage, to give the primacy of place ultimately to the question of conjugal love, marital love between husband and wife, or at the very least to completely eliminate the idea of primary and secondary ends, which by its very nature gives the primacy to the traditional understanding of procreation and education of the children. This, let's say, group was really animated by a Belgian cardinal, Leo Cardinal Swenens, um, who will figure a lot in this, this podcast. Now, um, let's say to begin, there was, uh, over a course of days, there was on the floor of the council, so they had kind of like a parliament, kind of like an open debate, where different bishops and cardinals could speak. 
And um, over the on this open floor, you had four speakers. You had Cardinal Leger from Montreal, Canada, Cardinal Swenens, a Eastern Rite Catholic, and then um, a Spanish or Latin American Catholic, Monsignor Mendez Arceo, all of okay. whom got up and basically argued in favor of reversing the church's traditional basic presentation. And here I'd just like perhaps to cite some of these um, the speeches, or at least portions of them. To begin, um, I'll quote from, in fact, a book by Xavier Wren, who I mentioned before. And the reason I like to quote him is he's a liberal. He's like, and his take on their interventions, like, this is awesome. Like, this is the way we need to go. So firstly, with Cardinal Leggio. So he gets up to speak. And he says the following. It should clearly present human conjugal love. And by the it, he's referring to the schema, which will become Gaudium et Spes, as a true end of marriage, as something good in itself, with its own characteristic and its own laws. What he means by this is that it's completely independent from the question of procreation. And that'll be important. He goes on, the schema is too hesitant on this point. There's no point in the schema's avoidance of the term secondary end for conjugal love if it does not present love as being at the service of procreation. So in other words, if the schema is ignores primary and secondary ends, but still says that conjugal love is ordered towards bringing new life in the world, and it's problematic because it means it's subordinated even there towards procreation. And he goes on, in marriage, the spouses should consider each other not as mere procreators, as rabbits, but as persons love for their own sakes. And then he ends by stating, It must also be stated that the intimate union of the spouses also finds a purpose in love, and this end is truly the end of the act itself, the marital act, lawful in itself, even when it is not ordained to procreation. Now that is a critical point. Mm-hmm. Because he's saying something more than what the church has always acknowledged. So, The church is always admitted. Let's say that when you have either a case where a couple gets married and finds out that for one reason or another, they're sterile. They cannot have children. Simply, there's something wrong for either the man or the woman that just doesn't allow it. They can still, they're still legitimately married and can make use of the marriage right. Completely and legitimately. Same thing for a couple after the child bearing years of the woman. They can still legitimately make use of that right, even though... Because of the deficiency of nature, it's certain that there's not going to be a new conception. That's not new. What he's saying is that, effectively, even if it's not ordained to procreation, meaning that if they put a positive obstacle to the possibility of a new conception, the fact that there is true conjugal love means that it's fine. Okay. It's a, that's a huge shift of perspective. 
and something that goes completely against what the church has always taught about the nature of what the right that the husband and the wife give to each other. It's the same principle if uh, two, two people of, of older age get married. There's no possibility for procreation, but Correct. It's, it's still, but that's the, the end of marriage is still the procreation. It, that doesn't change yep. the entire Correct. end of marriage. Right? Correct. You know, and they still, again, the idea is they make use of marriage in such a way that it would be possible for nature to take its course and lead to new life if nature hadn't been weak at that point. Right. So again, um, nobody questioned that. Nobody questioned that up until this time. So for to make that statement necessarily means one's going beyond that. And conversely, interestingly enough, what else does that make possible? That principle. Uh, Contraception. Certainly, but even we can go a step beyond that. Homosexual marriage. Oh, sure. Okay. Now, of course, Cardinal Leger would not have admitted that, but the principle that he's enunciating leads in that direction. Now, if we turn to Cardinal Swenens, he's, in a way, I would say, the the heart of this movement. Um, And he's pretty strong. So if we look at him, um, he, in a very long speech, in a very a speech that garnered an intense reaction from the conservatives, and we'll see them in a moment. He says um, the following. It's great. These, these liberals are very good. So he says, it's up for us, or it's up for the commission, and I'll mention that commission later, to study whether or up till now, we have given sufficient emphasis to all the aspects of the teaching of the church on marriage. To be sure, it is not a question of modifying or of casting doubt on the truly traditional teaching of the church. It's a very, very common thing. We're not throwing any doubt on this. But okay, let's go on. (laughs) So he continues, this established... It is important to examine whether we have maintained the perfect balance, in perfect balance, all aspects of the teaching of the church on marriage. It may be that we have accentuated the gospel text, increase and multiply, to such a point that we have obscured another text, that they will be two in one flesh. The two in one is a mystery of interpersonal communion gratified and sanctified by the sacrament of marriage. Now, what he means by that is, in other words, this is an independent purpose of marriage, that there be this intercommunion, interpersonal communion between the man and the wife. That's a goal for its own sake, regardless of the question of procreation. That's what Mm. we have to understand there. And it's also for this commission... To tell us whether we have excessively stressed the first end procreation at the expense of another equally important end, that is, growth in conjugal unity. In the same way, it is up to this commission to deal with the immense problem arising from the population explosion and overpopulation in many areas of the world. For the first time, we must proceed with such a study in the light of the faith. It is difficult. But in the, the world, whether consciously or not, awaits the church to express her thoughts and be a light for the nations. 
And what we'll see in a moment is that for Cardinal Swinnens, that meant allowing artificial contraception. He's very clear on that. And he ends that long speech by saying, I beg of you, my brother bishops, let us avoid a new quote-unquote Galileo affair. One is enough for the church. And he says, we must follow the progress of science. You know, it's in a way you can hear Cardinal Swenens being a foreshadowing of all that we've been hearing these last, let's say, few years. Follow the science. Just trust the science. And that's really what he's saying. It's like all these new modern medical developments that allow us to prevent conception, we should use them. We have to trust the science. Like I said, he's making these statements on the, the floor of the council in open debate. I'll pass over these, these other ones I mentioned because they don't really add anything intrinsically to what's already been said. But the conservatives really strongly react. You have a very famous intervention by Cardinal Ottaviani, and we've seen before uh, the prefect at the time of the Holy Office, and who gave a very personal comment in defense of the traditional doctrine. He said, look, I'm the 11th of 12 children that were born. I was, and who all were born to a poor family. But we have this great confidence in providence and trust in the goodness of God. And then you also have Cardinal Brown, who is a Dominican, who is a personal friend of Archbishop Lefebvre. And he, in a way, gave a little bit more systematic defense of the traditional doctrine. And he comments in the following way. He says, I thought that the council discussion would throw light on the text. But I find now that I must bear witness to the traditional doctrine on marriage, which has been called into doubt. The primary end of marriage is procreation and the education of children. The secondary end is, on the one hand, the mutual aid of the spouses, and on the other, a remedy of concupiscence. This is basic marriage you know, instruction. And he's like, uh, <laughs> this is the most basic point about what marriage is. And I'm having to remind all of my fellow bishops about this. Then he goes on, what about love, you may say? Love forms a part of marriage, but we must distinguish between the love of friendship, which desires the welfare of another, and the love of concupiscence, which seeks what is good for oneself. The kind of love required for the stability of marriage is the conjugal love of friendship. There is an element of sensual pleasure in the marital act which often causes the love of concupiscence to predominate. And we must be careful, therefore, in vindicating the right of that conjugal love. It is good when the spouses act with due regard for the ends of marriage. In other words, when it is open to life, which is precisely that act of friendship. I'm willing to give myself to you to such an extent that I'm open to there being another you. I mean, that's really what you know, the Marriage Act is all about. And so he says, the begetting and education of children, fidelity in rendering the debt, and the sacrament which renders married life holy. And there is a lot of other interventions there, but that I think will suffice for the moment. Like I said, it was a very strong um, debate. So much so, and basically the progressives were so intense that Paul VI himself, the, very, the Pope, sent a number of amendments to the floor that they had to consider. 
and which made very clear the traditional teaching, actually, that artificial contraception was not permitted, not lawful. Now, the liberals... But we have these bishops on the floor of a Vatican Council basically trying to upend marriage, the entire teaching. And I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked, Father, after going through the entire crisis in the church series, but for some reason mm-hmm. that really surprises me, uh, like you when you were talking about what Cardinal Brown was saying. This is basic marriage class 101, and yeah. we're just reversing it. <coughs> Correct. Exactly. We're just oh. reversing it. Um, and again, uh, what we can say in a way is... Uh, at a very deep level, perhaps we'll come back to this closer to the end today, is we're dealing with a loss of faith. Yeah. A loss of a supernatural perspective. I mean, that's what Cardinal Ottaviani was saying. It's like, look, yeah, it can be rough, but there is this sense of being united with our Lord on the cross, as we saw last time. Marriage is about that union of Christ with his church on the cross and the fruitfulness that comes from that. And there is a sense of trusting providence, not unintelligently, not being you know, um, foolish and just not taking uh, the means to provide, for example, for a father to provide for his family or whatever, but still trusting providence. Now, coming back to this, these amendments that Pius, or sorry, not Pius, but Paul VI sent in, um, I'll just read a few sections here from uh, Father Vilkin's book, uh, The Rhine Flows in the Tiber. Again, a very good reference. And he says that the first of these amendments called for the insertion of two words, artificial contraceptives, among the, quote, deformations detracting from the dignity of conjugal love and family life, like polygamy, divorce, and free love. At the same time, the Pope called for a precise footnote reference to the two pages in Pope Pius XI's encyclical, encyclical Casti Canubi, where the use of artificial contraceptives was condemned. So he, Paul VI actually is pretty clear. Okay, look, these are against the purpose of marriage and therefore cannot be used. Now, the commission that received these amendments excused itself from introducing artificial contraceptions and used instead illicit practices against human generation and omitted the references to Cascanubi. So basically they received this uh, amendment that the Pope wanted inserted into the text. It's like, oh, okay, that's very nice. We're going to get rid of the heart of it. And also, it says, uh, the third of these amendments, again, quoting Vilkin, the third called for the substitution of the words, it is not lawful, for the words should not, in the prohibition to quote sons of the church, to use methods of regulating procreation, quote, which have been or may be found blameworthy by the teaching authority of the church. A footnote was to be added here, calling attention both to Casti Canubii and to Pius XII's allocution to midwives, which reiterated the teaching of that encyclical, stating that the prescription against artificial contraceptions was derived from natural and divine law. So something that's from God. Now, the difference between it is not lawful and should not is that when we speak of it's not being lawful, it's forbidden. But should not is a recommendation. Okay, this really would recommend that you not do that. It's better, but, you know, if you have to, okay. Okay, that's really the, the sense of the difference, that small little phrase there. But once again, the Joint Commission that's responsible for bringing these amendments in effectively completely changed it. It doesn't quote either Pope Paul Pius XI or twelfth, 
And it quotes uh, a speech that Paul VI gave about, let's say, a commission that had been formed, and which we'll look at in detail, to, quest- to study the question of artificial contraception, in which he said, okay, look, we can't change things yet, but we're looking at it, which raises the problem. So basically, they're like, yeah, it's not from the natural divine law. We're looking at it. We may change it. Wow. So it's a big thing. Now, what the con- kind of conclusion of that is, in the eyes of liberals such as Cardinal Swenens, Cardinal Leggio, ultimately parents could legitimately and deliberately limit the number of children they had. And to do so, again, and we'll back this up presently, is to make use of contraceptions to frustrate the marital act, provided that they did so in order to, quote, foster conjugal love. You know, Cardinal Swenens himself really wanted to see Casti Canubi revised. Hmm. Again, in the light of this idea that we're no longer is marriage primarily about bringing new life into the world and educating the children that are a gift of God. Rather, it's, it's that simply a independent and co-equal end sometimes with this question of marital intimacy, marital conjugal love. Okay. So again, we have to understand that for them, they wouldn't say that there should never be children, and they certainly wouldn't go so far as by any stretch of the imagination to admit of, uh, let's say, the modern argument in favor of homosexual unions or anything like that. But they're bringing in the principle that does make that legitimate. Right. Now, the fruit of all these debates is rather uh, ambiguous. So... Uh, just to quote real quickly, Xavier Wren again, and his conclusion on the section, uh, he says very approvingly, so after the challenge is thrown down in the debate on Thursday, by what he means is the conservatives, one Peritus, a frequent spokesman for the new theology of marriage, summed up his impressions in the following words, quote, it was the death of Casti Canubi, End quote. So he sees that as awesome. You know, this is progress. And Xavier Wren, again, he's, he, he's fully on board with that. Now, like I said, the, the final text of Gaudium Spes on marriage is ambiguous. Meaning that it tends to announce the traditional doctrine in a number of places on the primacy of procreation. Well, nonetheless, insisting on equality of the conjugal love as a purpose. So it's kind of an uneasy balance. Okay, and that's partly as a result of the, the pushback of people like Cardinal Ottaviani and Cardinal Brown. Nevertheless, um, Father Vilken could still say uh, in his kind of summary uh, on this whole section that... Um, this new version of the text could still be interpreted as leaving it to the spouses to decide whether or not to use artificial contraceptives to limit the size of their families, provided their ultimate aim was the fostering of conjugal love. And Father Vilken is not a conservative, really. He's not as full bore liberal and progressive as Xavier Wren, but he's still commenting. So, okay, it leaves it open, it seems. Okay. And it was in order to kind of close that gap that Paul VI sent those amendments I was just quoting or t- discussing and which were basically gutted. And 
To quote uh, Roberto de Mattei in his book, uh, The Second Vatican Council, An Unwritten Story, he says at the very end of his view of this uh, section that, unfortunately, the family morality formulated in the chapter, the quote, dignity of matrimony and of the family, in Gaudium et Spes, would incorporate the suggestions of the innovators rather than those that offenders of traditional morality. And it resulted in the unfortunate synthesis of contrary tendencies, meaning that you're, you have both uh, viewpoints clashing with each other. And so I think it might be good just to quote a few of those sections from Gaudium et Spes to kind of get that, that, that clash. Okay. So paragraph 48 of Gaudium et Spes, it stated that by their very nature, the institution of matrimony itself and conjugal love are ordained for the procreation and education of children and find in them their ultimate crown, which in many respects is basically just a restatement of the traditional doctrine. You know, by its very nature, they're directed towards that. A little few two paragraphs later in paragraph 50, we read, hence, while not making the other purposes of matrimony of less account, the true practice of conjugal love and the whole meaning of the family life which results from it, from it have the same, that the couple be ready with stout hearts to cooperate with the love of the Creator and the Savior, who through them will enlarge and enriches, enrich his own family day by day. So again, this aim of family life, the whole meaning of family life, is that the couple be ready to work with God the Creator, in other words, to bring new life into the world. Okay. But it's interesting, they make a point of saying, while not making other purpose of matrimony of less account. Okay. Okay. And then a little bit later in that same paragraph, we read, marriage, to be sure, is not instituted solely for procreation. Rather, it is very nature as an unbreakable compact between persons and the welfare of children, both demand that the mutual love of the spouses be embodied in a rightly ordered manner, let it grow and ripen. So, again, it's not solely for procreation. Again, the language is tending towards this equality of love, marital love, and procreation. And then finally, in that, to just quote the section that specifically deals with what uh, Father Ralph Vilkin was saying, that it seems that it could be potentially open to artificial contraception, the document says that thus they, the, the spouses, will fulfill their task of procreation with human and Christian responsibility, and with docile reverence toward God, will make decisions by common counsel and effort. Let them thoughtfully take into account both their own welfare and that of their children, those already born and those which the future may bring. For this accounting, they need to reckon with both the material and the spiritual conditions of the times as well as their state in life. Finally, they should consult the interests of the family group of temporal society and of the church herself. The parents themselves and no one else should ultimately make the judgment in the side of God. The judgment they're talking about is whether to have another child. Okay. Um, and again, it's not simply as though that uh, cannot be understood properly, but at the same right. time, given the language, it's 
and given the fact that there's not an explicit rejection of artificial contraception, it leaves open that door, which was the right. intention of the authors. Um, now, before coming back to that question of artificial contraception, because there is really where you find this new conception of marriage um, incarnated, I would say. Um, I think it's important to, under, uh, to look at how uh, this vision of the new status of the ends of marriage has been translated into the life of the church. Um, the, this language and vision, that is to say the equal status of marital love and procreation, has really been enshrined in the mindset of the modern church. You know, that's where things, um, how it's viewed. Um, and maybe just uh, as a little anecdote, I remember talking with somebody, uh, a young person that I knew, that was uh, soon to be married and was getting classes through the diocese uh, where they where this person lived, and um, the the priest who was giving the instructions at the following the guidance of the the diocese basically told the person and their prospective spouse that basically as soon as you get into the marriage, you can use natural family planning. In other words, you can you know, deliberately make use of the marriage in the way that's most likely not to have children. Right. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> then in the, again, the mindset there is, okay, look, you know, you're free not to choose not to have kids right away. Because you love each other, and that's fine. You know, and, uh, fortunately, this person was very generous and didn't go along with that. They, yeah. uh, they and their spouse now have several children. But uh, again, that the mindset is it's only possible with that revision of what the ends of marriage are. Because if you can't get married if you're not ready to have kids, basically, right. you. And the difference there with the traditional teaching of the church is sometimes given very specific circumstances beyond one's own control and which would make it unjust in one way or another to bring in a new life, then one may make use of those that the marital act in a way that's you know going to render less likely a new conception. Right. Um, but still open to life. You can't right, but never impossible. Yeah, never ruling it out. So anyways, right. there's a few things which I think kind of help this out. So firstly, if we look at canon law. So in the new canon law, the 1983 Code of Canon Law, in Canon 1055, we read that the matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life and which is ordered by its nature to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring has been raised by Christ to the dignity of a sacrament between the baptized. Anyways, there's no discussion of primary, secondary ends, and what appears first is the good of the spouses themselves. Okay. If we look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in the 1990s, uh, in paragraph 1601, there we read, the matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its nature ordered to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. And this covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignitary of a sacrament. So, yes, it's, it's again, 
this idea that there is an equality. And it's, you know, if one doesn't have that history in the background, what the church has indeed always taught, you know, one might be like, okay, that's fine. But the difficulty quickly becomes that, well, again, this is the mindset very deeply behind that breakdown of the Catholic family that we've seen over the last 50 and 60 years. Sorry, were you going to ask a question there or? No, I was just, I was just thinking it's, it's not, um, again, that, that 1601 in the catechism, it doesn't, it's nothing wrong in there, but they are, but they're switching the order of things. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not Which, saying that one is more important than the other, the, the other, but that's the problem. Yeah, exactly. It's precisely the problem. And we can even now, if we look then at the new right of marriage okay. itself, it's intriguing. You know, one author points out that effectively um, the new right more or less is completely drawn up from whole cloth and it admits of a huge amount of possible varieties. They, they did some quick analysis and they come up with a number of something along the lines of uh, 20 million possible uh, ways of doing the marriage right. Uh, as opposed to the one and only one way of doing it in the uh, traditional right. Um, but uh, we can say a couple of things about the right in and of itself. So firstly, um, firstly, that it doesn't, it downplays a great deal in the right itself, the question of marriage. You know, so he points out that the traditional marriage states two times that God established marriage for the continuation of the human race. And every traditional marriage reference to children is asking God for the blessing of children, confirming that children are a blessing of God. And indeed, I can add to that that the nuptial blessings that we discussed a little bit last time, and as we saw, um, make very clear that um, we ask the church asks for the couple that they see their children and their children's children under the third and fourth generation. It's very much in the presence of the mind of the church in giving this right. Now, the author points out, in contrast, the Novus Ordo marriage right teaches that marriage provides man the constant help of a woman, so that woman and man should no longer be two, but one flesh. And the references to children are um, more sparse in fact, it's in a way um, stated almost as a wish. In fact, the Novus Ordo Rite inquires whether the couple will accept children lovingly. And then, in the words of the author, sells the idea by praying, may your children bring you happiness. So, I mean, we could say that it's understood that the couple are going to say, yes, we will accept children lovingly. But it still is presented as a question. And it doesn't speak of it as a duty or as a blessing, but rather as a hope that it becomes a source of happiness. Hmm. And it's interesting because if you look at the nuptial blessing, the Novus Ordo uh, rite does still keep the longer blessing that we looked at in a little detail last time, but with some very intriguing uh, differences. So uh, just real quickly, to to speak of the first uh, of the traditional blessings, it says, Listen with favor, O Lord, to our prayers, and graciously graciously uphold the institution of marriage, 
established by you for the continuation of the human race, so that they who have been joined together by your authority may remain faithful together with your help. Now that same prayer is basically rendered in this way in the Novus Ordo Rite. My dear friends, let us turn to the Lord and pray that he will bless with his grace this woman, now married in Christ, and this man, and that he will unite and love the couple he has joined in this holy bond. So there's no reference any longer to the continuation of the human race. And then, in that longer blessing, which can be, uh, multiple parts can be just ignored, or left out, so as in the words of the rubrics, uh, that they be not too long, or that they, so as to shorten the blessing. One of the things that can be left out, uh, an option is uh, that words can be said, or they may be omitted, is this. Bless them with children, and help them to be good parents, and may they live to see their children's children. That's an option <laughs> uh, in the blessing. You know? So in other words, you could go through it and say, no, no, we don't actually wish for you that blessing. And the author, you know, being a little bit harsh, says that with a few d- d- changes or with a few uh, options that are available there, it's entirely possible that this right could be used for homosexual marriage. As you can, with all those different possibilities available, you could choose Bible readings, omit those references to children, and there you go. Again, obviously it's not in the, uh, the first intention, but right. unfortunately it leaves itself open to that. And then lastly, again, just looking at how this new mindset is discussed, this, this leveling of the two... We can look at humane vitae, which uh, we'll maybe discuss in a moment. Um, it's the encyclical published by Pius, or, sorry, Paul VI in 1968, which uh, reiterated the church's forbidding of the use of artificial contraception. But even here, so in paragraph eight, uh, the Pope says, Marriage, then, is far from being the effect of chance or the result of the blind evolution of natural forces. It is, in reality, the wise and provident institution of God, the Creator, whose purpose was to effect in man his loving design. As a consequence, husband and wife, through that mutual gift of themselves, which is specific and exclusive to them alone, develop that union of two persons in which they perfect one another, cooperating with God in the generation and the rearing of new lives. And then in paragraph 9, finally, this conjugal love is fecund, fruitful, is not confined wholly to the loving interchange of husband and wife. It also contrives to go beyond this to bring new life into being. So even in when he's defending and forbidding artificial contraception, the way he talks about marriage is that firstly, it's about this mutual gift for themselves in which they, as he says in paragraph eight, in which they perfect one another. And that love is firstly directed towards each other, but it's not limited to it. It seeks to go beyond that by bringing a new life into the world in union with God's creative action. So even here, it's completely different perspective which is unfortunate because it's part of the reason why there's going to be such an intense reaction against that encyclical. 
And um, maybe just the last quote to show this, this mindset just being everywhere in the church. We can look at um, Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis, and the final relation of the Synod of Bishops that prepared it. So in the final relation, this is the document published by the bishops to give to Pope Francis to lead him to publish his exhortation. So there we read that the Second Vatican Council defined marriage as a community of life and love, putting love at the center of the family. It's interesting. Because Amoris Laetitia in the final relation will become very important for other reasons. What we'll see perhaps a little bit later, not today, but when we look at marriage from the point of view of ecumenism, it's very interesting. Right. But again, love is, marriage is all about love and love of husband and wife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then when that love goes away, or if something happens to destroy that, I mean... I mean, that, this is the whole domino effect or the avalanche or whatever metaphor you want to use. Mm-hmm. If you get rid of that principal part of the procreate, and I'm reiterating what you've already said, sorry, but I'm mm-hmm. just making no, no, it stupider. Um, but if you get rid of that first point, then what is left? Love. Great. Love should be there. But if then if you get rid of, if love goes away, then you can get divorced. Then you can get remarried. Mm-hmm. Then you can have mm-hmm. same-sex marriage. Then you can have, I mean... Doors open. Yeah, all these things. Yep. Yeah. And again, it's that'd be far beyond what, say, a Cardinal Swenens or Cardinal Leger sure. would have intended. And they would have argued against certainly homosexual marriage. They would have argued against divorce. Um, but they're arguing but to get the rid of the principle. And once you get rid of the yep. principle, it's all open. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's they've shot themselves in the foot in a, in a way. In a way. Right. Um, so lastly, just to quote, <clears throat> well, actually, this is a little bit elsewhere. What I think might be good now might be to look at that encyclical I mentioned in my a little bit more in detail because as I okay. said it's really kind of where this the effect where these liberals are driving becomes incarnate and more easily visible in Humanae Vitae Pope Paul VI is going to definitively reiterate and uh, the traditional teaching of the church on artificial contraception saying that it is not permitted you cannot frustrate that nat- natural part of that marital act. It's simply not uh, in consonance with the divine or the natural law. Now, this document was published uh, in July 25th, 1968. It's the m- middle of a miserable summer. Uh, it's a lot of revolutions, a lot of student protests, all this, and just a lot of charming nature. Now, maybe just a little bit of context of this encyclical beyond what we've already seen is that basically all the Protestant denominations by this point have admitted contraception, beginning with the Anglicans at their what's called their Lambeth Conference as a group meeting of all their uh, dignitaries, as it were, um, in 1930, where they permitted Anglican couples to use birth control under certain circumstances. They didn't say it's all fine whenever you want, but they said in principle, at times, it can be legitimate. Now, that was the same year that Casti Kunubi was published by Pius XI. He published that at the very end of the year. And of course, so everybody's talking about the Anglicans, you know, which are not the modern Anglicans, um, our Episcopalians 
who believe in nothing. But anyways, so this you know it's still a very big social institution in England, and therefore for much of the world, England was a very great world power at the time. So everyone's talking about this, and obviously the Pope has to address it. And so he speaks about this question in the following terms. Through our mouth proclaims anew any use whatsoever of matrimony exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated in his natural power to generate life is offense against God, I'm sorry, against the law of God and of nature. And those who indulge in such a are branded with the guilt of a grave sin. So it's part of the divine law and the natural law. Anything that would frustrate the natural act. So again, that's and that's what's going to be reiterated, though not in such strong language, by Paul VI. Now also, at the same time frame, you have a famous Supreme Court case here in the United States uh, in 1965, so about three years earlier, called Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, basically, Griswold was a representative of Planned Parenthood, the great joy of Planned Parenthood, and that case declared unconstitutional a state law of Connecticut which forbade married couples from using contraception under the guise of their right to privacy. In fact, this will be the case that sets the precedent that leads to Roe versus Wade. And then, so just in a, just read a kind of a short summary of the case from a Harvard Law site. In a seven to two ruling, the Supreme Court concluded that Connecticut's state law against contraceptives and counseling, counseling violated, quote, a zone of privacy that is inherent in the Constitution. Even though the Constitution does not explicitly protect a general right to privacy, there are various degrees within the Bill of Rights that create penumbras, or zones, and establish a right to privacy. It's various penumbras. So penumbra means a shadow. It's like you have right. a shadow of a right. So whatever. Anyways. And, and this isn't this isn't a law podcast or a Supreme Court podcast, but it's that word is fascinating in Supreme yep. Court uh, language. Yeah, because I mean, that, that is anything can be can be put into oh, yeah. a penumbra. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, anything. Yeah. Which of course is how they'll find out. Oh yeah. By the way, you know, there's this yeah. right to you know kill the babies in your mother's womb. I mean, of course, this is what the founders had in mind. They were clearly they just couldn't quite yeah. articulate it yet. It's an idiot. Anyway, sorry, it's not very quite. So, and the last thing as far as the context, and this perhaps most relevant, is that there had been a commission that I've kind of referenced a few times before, established under John the 23rd in 1963, right before he died, in fact. Okay. It was meant to study some of these more modern techniques. For example, the pill, which had been developed in 1960. That commission was continued by Paul VI, to study the question more in depth. It came to include, in the end, about 60 experts, a lot of whom were Belgians, uh, which is important. And at the same time, Pope Paul VI also added to that a commission specifically of 16 bishops, of whom one was Cardinal Swenens. It'll be interesting. Uh, now, a majority of the members of both of those commissions, the one of 60 experts, and the one of 16 bishops made recommendations to allow artificial contraception. In the case of the bishops, nine of them said that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with artificial contraception out of the 16. Three only said no, 
And four of them were like, I don't know. Okay. And this, wow. the experts, the majority of that commission also recommended it, which is interesting because it shows a certain moral fortitude on the part of Paul VI to go against yeah. it. Because he, he, he went against all the, uh, the majority of those bishops and those experts, as well as, there's a great quote. Uh, this is from the notes of Cardinal Swenens uh, once the encyclical was published. He writes, and again, um, and this is actually this is a bit of a summary of the notes, but the encyclical has shocked so many people because it went even before beyond what anyone foresaw in conservating in conservatism, and as a reaffirmation of the doctrine announced 30 years ago by Pius XI, the Pope has taken his again a decision against the commission of 60 experts, against the Cardinal and Episcopal Commission of 15 members or 16 members, against the uh, World Congress of Laity held in 1967, against the great mass of theologians, and against a good number of households. And again, that's Cardinal Swenens. And for him, he's like, everybody is saying this is fine. And the right. Pope now is saying it's not. You know, and so he was pretty upset. This is probably a very strange thing to say on an SSPX podcast, but I have a great amount of respect for Paul VI for doing that. No, no. I mean, it was... That's great. In, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it, like I said, it shows a moral fortitude and yeah. a devotion to the traditional doctrine. I mean, it's... Yeah. There's, uh, there was a document I read in preparing this. It's put together by a, a Belgian, Leo de Klerk, who was involved in some of these uh, deliberations, but he... Uh, there's a back and forth of letters between the Pope and Cardinal Swenen. So you could see the fact that the Pope was personally wounded by the fact that they had gone against him, but he stood firm. It's like, I have to. My conscience commands me to do this. Yeah, good. So, um, but obviously what that entails is that there's a lot of uh, opposition. And it might be good to look just at the reaction of the Belgian Episcopate under the guidance of uh, Cardinal Swenens because that kind of set the tone for a lot of countries, uh, we may say. Now, they published their reaction on the 30th of August of the same year. It was primarily written by Monsignor Phillips, uh, who was a, um, a theologian who had been instrumental in writing Lumen Gentium at the council, so he's not just a nobody. Um, and it's interesting, the spirit, we may say, of the, the bishops, not all of whom are on the same page, um, is described by Cardinal Swenens in this way. This meeting of the bishops, which leads to the document, opened with two tendencies. The one, which I could resume in this way, Roma locuta est, causa finita est, so Roma spoken, the cause is finished. In other words, we can't, we can't defend this. The other tendency, this is really good. The other tendency, which I would resume by this other adage, which he actually takes from Aristotle, a friend to Plato, but more a friend to truth. Mm. Um, in other words, we're going to be loyal. We love Plato. We love, and Plato here is Pope Paul VI. We love Paul VI, but we love the truth more. In other words, the Pope got it wrong. Yeah. And the thing is, like I said, this reaction is going to really be the heart of the document that the Belgian bishops eventually published because Cardinal Swinens drives things. 
And that's going to shape basically a lot of reactions by a lot of bishops, a lot of priests in handling this question. Okay, look, there's the formal statement of artificial contraception, but we're going to go in the direction of the fact that there is this love. You know, that's an independent end of marriage, which the Pope himself even speaks like that. So he just doesn't draw the consequences that a lot of other people draw from it. Now, just very briefly, this document has a basic structure of three parts. Firstly, we must submit to the Pope even in non-infallible judgments. Conclusion, we must submit to the Pope. Middle part, yeah, there's some leeway. It's great. <laughs> it's, very, it's, it's very well done. Right. So, for example, in where the central part of it, which is where they get to the heart of it, they're stated, okay, so after all this, we have to submit to the Pope. We have to, you know, lay down our judgment at the authority in the church. If, nevertheless, someone competent in the matter and capable of forming for themselves a well-established personal judgment, which, of course, supposes a necessary information, comes after certain points of a serious examination before God to different conclusions. They are within their rights to follow them within the domain of their conviction, provided that they remain disposed to continue loyally in their uh, search for the truth. So basically, if somebody is studying this question that the Pope has just issued a judgment on, the fact that there cannot be a use of artificial contraception, and they come to the conclusion, oh, actually, no, I think I can, well, they can do it. It's great. And they continue on, even in this case, they have to preserve sincerely their adhesion to Christ and to his church, and to recognize respectfully the importance of the Supreme Magisterium, as the Constitution Lumen Gentium prescribes, which I wrote, again, Monsignor Phillips. (laughs) They ought also to watch not to compromise the common good and the salvation of their brethren by an unhealthy agitation, or, by even more strong use, by putting into question the principle of authority. So in other words, they can continue to do what they have, but they have to be respectful. They can't come out and say, the Pope has no idea what he's talking about, and we should all go against him. But I judge that he's wrong. Yeah. I mean, they they have a few other areas where they um, kind of elaborate that point, but the the basic point's been made. Not to to belabor this point, uh, but it is striking here this this document or this conclusion basically outlines when according to uh, according to Swenin's right Swenin um, well he was yeah all the bishops it was published under all the bishops name under but all Monsignor, the bishops yeah this is this is kind of a guideline for in their mind as to when you are allowed to disobey the Pope yeah. but the the problem here and, and people would say why is it that on an SSPX podcast, why is it, Father Loop, you are you are mocking a, a cardinal or or saying, hey, he's saying disobedience, but you are disobedience. Here's the here's the distinction, though. Magisterium the, or the the teaching tradition is on the side of of everything that the SSPX is saying. There is nowhere in tradition or in the magisterium the teaching power of the church that says this is ever okay, and they're still saying go ahead and disobey the Pope on it. Yeah, it's striking. and moreover. And moreover, what we're dealing with here is a pope who's issuing a judgment where he's reiterating what his predecessors have taught again and again, right. effectively. Right. Um, 
multiple. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the, the question of artificial birth control is not something that, let's say, for example, I don't know, St. Pius V would have been really heavily right. engaged in. You know, it's not impossible because there would have been something that people could do, but sure. it wasn't as pressing an issue. Um, so, obviously, only a few more recent popes had talked about it, but they based themselves on very solid principles, namely the, the first and primary purpose of marriage being precisely to give life. And it's something that they had founded on the divine law, saying this is part of the divine law, as we saw from Pius XI. And Paul VI is simply saying, that's it. I, I, in my conscience, must go against this and uphold what the church, my predecessors, have always taught. And right. now what we see in these men is like, oh, okay. You can say that, but effectively, my own personal conscience, well-informed conscience, which uh, allows me to go against it, but how are they forming their conscience? Right. If not conscience. by the teachings of the church. Conscience is not the root of morality. No, I mean, it's that's not. Basic it's one catechism else. too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same. This same level of argumentation is the same thing we see with John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were talking about the Americanism, where mm-hmm. he says, "Okay, look, you know, I will basically not be guided in my public life as a Catholic, but rather by my private conscience," which raises the question: What's forming your private conscience if not the moral teachings of the Church? Right. So again. Um, so again, they finished the thing. Um, uh, well, maybe just one last quote from the document before concluding. They, they say, uh, the bishops say, it's necessary to recognize, according to the traditional doctrine, that the last or ultimate practical rule is dictated by a conscience duly um, enlightened according to the uh, collection of criteria exposed in Gaudium et Spes. And that the judgment on the opportunity of a new transmission of life belongs in the last resort to the spouses themselves who ought to decide before God. But again, from their point of view, that conscience is not being formed by the teaching authority of the church, but from somewhere else. And from their perspective, ultimately from medicine and modern science is what it would come down to. Now, just to kind of wrap everything together that we've seen today, and... (laughs) kind of present because this is only one of the aspects in which marriage has been deformed um, since Vatican II. Right. Um, but this, what we're seeing, this shift of perspective of what marriage is and is for, but equalizing of the ends and in a way making, practically speaking, the end of the common good of the spouses, um, primary over children, is deeply intertwined with those statistics we were seeing earlier. Um, it's it's um, If conjugal love is that primary end of marriage and something fundamentally independent of procreation, as you yourself said, it becomes very difficult to justify forcing a couple to stay married right. if they cease to have this love for another. You know, and again, we're going to see that a little bit more in detail with the question of Amoris Laetitiae, which we'll see more in detail when we look at the marriage and so far as it's been reinterpreted in light of ecumenism um, and there'll be several aspects there as well as the fact that you've had especially in catholic countries an absolute cratering of child rearing um it's not merely catholic countries but you know there are ones where it's strikingly notable right um 
Now, just to conclude, Damate and his uh, he has a section uh, of the after council, and he talks about humanae vitae, and he notes that Paul VI was so wounded by that widespread and vocal opposition on both the part of laity and clerics um, to humanae vitae that he did not publish another encyclical for the entirety of the rest of his pon- pontificate. Mm-hmm. So that was published in 1968. He dies in 1978. So last he'd published like six or seven in the first five years, nothing in the last 10. And practically, I think that's maybe a good either microcosm or image of kind of what's happened in the leaders of the church. They've in a way done the same thing in this question of the instant marriage. They speak oftentimes in such ways to, to confuse the faithful. And effectively allow them to practice the means that they, even the leaders will denounce when they speak about it as being contrary to the law of God. I mean, there's no way that, let's say, 60, 70% of Catholic women in the U.S. are regularly using highly effective means of contraception. In other words, uh, practically denying that procreation is the reason they got married. Right. If the leadership in the church is not making a point of giving them that formation. You know, in one way or another. And it's the real issue that we see in the church is not the question, as Pope Francis said, that, you know, Catholics being made, you know, spoken of reading like rabbits, but rather that they've been led to have a truly impoverished and incomplete love or knowledge or understanding, I should say, of what Catholic marital love is. Right. The fact that it is, in fact, the ability to share with God, to communicate life, and that according to the traditional teaching of the church it's always the occasion whenever they have that joy with their spouse to be open to that life even if you know god or nature doesn't you know uh, bless it at that moment um and only you know in very exceptional circumstances uh that are independent of their will you know to make use of marriage even in such a way that it would make it less likely that they'd have a new life um it's precisely by giving back that spirit of sacrifice, that willingness, that openness to life, that we'll see a return to this healing of those you know, disastrous statistics that we're seeing. So in other words, it's kind of depressing to see what's going on in the church in a wider uh, scale, but we have the answer. It's what we saw in the last episode, it's, and which is a beautiful answer. It's crucifying, it is, but nevertheless, the source of true joy of the joy that God has in his eternal, let's say, um, generation of the Son. So. Wow. Father, that was, um, it was a great reminder, and thank you for putting that all together for us. That was, um, you know these things, or as, as Catholics, we know these things, or we should know these things in any case, uh, but to see it all in that timeline, that was excellent. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thank you.